Hi, everyone. So I'm going to be really transparent here about something. I've spent the last two weeks feeling really frustrated about the fact that I have no accurate idea about how to market myself and my side business in the field of dance movement therapy and mind-body practices. I've been really overwhelmed with all the information out there that will point me in a million different directions without actually knowing if any of those marketing plans will actually work for me in this field. So I thought I'd use this opportunity to talk to professionals in body-based practices to see how they went about it. I'm calling this the Mind-Body Marketing Series. And today is part one, where we'll hear from Erica Hornthal, founder of Chicago Dance Therapy, about how she founded her practice and continues her marketing efforts every day. This will be helpful for you if you're in the field thinking about going private, thinking about starting something independent, and just not sure what to do. Even if you're a student, this is a resource to come back to someday when you're ready to make that step. Because I'll be honest, they don't teach you about this in any training programs that I know about. And if you're a seasoned professional and you have experience with this, well, I would love for you to get into contact with me and share anything that could be helpful for other people. And by the way, this is not just for dance movement therapists. This is for anybody who is in a creative, unique, and often misunderstood field. So I hope I hope this is helpful for you. Speaking of marketing, I wanted to remind everyone about the Lever View Contest. There's only 20 days left in the contest, and we've gotten four reviews since the start. So your chances of winning a free Elastoblast are still very high. You can find the details on our website at www.mindyourbodydmt.com and click on Leave a Review. So the contest ends on October 9th, so make sure you submit a review before then to enter. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. So the first thing that I wanted to ask is if you could give a a brief biography of where you started in dance movement therapy and a little bit of a description of your journey that led you to private practice and where you're at today? Sure. So I was a freshman in college. I started at the University of Florida um, and they have an incredible, now it's um, arts and medicine program. And at the time, I think it was just dance and medicine, which I did not know about. That's not why I went there. Just logistics and family. And I'm, I had lived in Florida for many years and wanted to go back. And I decided, okay, I'm going to start as a dance major, even though it was not my passion. It wasn't like, I'm going to be a professional dancer. I'm going to teach. I'm going to open a studio. Like that was kind of the last thing on my mind, but I really did not want to let go of dance. I didn't want to stop dancing. And it was like six months into the program, you know, where, uh, the department director meets with everybody and, you know, is kind of wanting to see if they're really a right fit and how they're doing. And, and I remember being honest with her, you know, I was like, I'm not into the lighting and the costuming and I don't really want to study that. I love taking dance classes, 
but I'm also taking some science classes that I love and I don't know what to do, but I know that being a dance major isn't, isn't going to be it. <laughs> I didn't think I'd make it through the four years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, the professor said you should look into dance movement therapy. I see that you're taking psychology and you know, it marries the two. And I had no idea what it was. I'd never heard of it. Nobody had ever mentioned it to me before. Um, and I went back to my dorm room that night and Googled it and found the ADTA. And like that night switched my major to psychology and just knew like from then on, I'm going to be a dance movement therapist. I think we all don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, like we get into it. And then once we're in school and like learning it all, we're like, Oh my God, what is this? <laughs> But it was such a great fit for me because it married the two things that I was passionate about. Psychology, I just felt like it kind of came easy in the sense that I thought it was second nature. And I realized that not everybody felt that way and that I had been a helper and, you know, somebody uh, that loved listening and helping people with their problems for so long. I was like, oh, maybe I should make a career out of this. So, So that was it. I graduated with my bachelor's in psych. And I actually transferred. I graduated from the University of Illinois because now my family lives in Illinois. And, you know, during my undergraduate, I I just I knew from then on that I was going to go to school for dance movement therapy. I looked at a different few different programs, but having moved to Chicago, I really wanted to try to stay local and just took my chance on applying to Columbia and uh, was accepted Although I didn't really know what dance movement therapy was or what it looked like. I think on some level, I always knew I wanted to be a private practitioner. I had known, you know, from my undergraduate degree, most of my professors had private practices. And most of the case studies that we did talked about, you know, private practice. And that just seemed interesting to me. I was like, I want to go to people's homes or I want them to come to my office. And I want to have these one-on-one meaningful conversations and help people change, you know, or help them change themselves. So I never really thought of it otherwise. And so I think that just always stuck with me. I remember in graduate school always asking, well, what about this in private practice? Or like, what does licensure look like? Or what does insurance look like? And not a lot of people had the answers. And I remember like it not being a focus, not not that they didn't want to talk about it, but it was like, you have a while to go. Let's not concentrate on that quite yet. Right. I can <laughs> So yeah, that, uh, you know, just did my internship and kind of found populations I was passionate about. Mm -hmm. So you had your internship and then after you graduated, did you work in some public institutions? Yeah, so my internship, my main internship was at a day center for people with memory uh, impairment. And I just fell in love with that work so much. And there really weren't many dance movement therapists in my area doing that work. I knew of a few, but they weren't in private practice. And, you know, I just thought, oh, well, maybe this is where I should start. You know, I always wanted to work with kind of just, you know, your, quote, normal neurotic population. But I knew I had to make a name for myself somehow to just, one, start getting people to notice what movement therapy even was. And so I kind of made my rounds. I worked at a lot of different influential agencies in the Chicagoland area. I did uh, activities. I I worked as a coordinator. Then I worked my way up to um, a director of a small department in a a nursing facility. Um, I decided to go into some case management to learn like kind of the social work side of things. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I think that was my last job before I started kind of like moonlighting you know, I got my license and decided to start reaching out to referral sources, places that I thought might have one-on-one people that I could work with. 
or individuals I could work with. And um, it started out slow, but I got one client and that turned into two. And eventually I started looking for part-time work so that I could leave my full-time job, start my practice, and then also you know, maybe have 15 to 20 hours of like solid work to fall back on just so that I had a steady income. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually as a, he called it a mentor. It was kind of like a friendly visitor, um, somebody that would visit individuals in either nursing homes or um, psychiatric facilities. It was strictly just um, companionship. And so that helped me hone my skills too. And then I remember the day, like having to go to my supervisor and say, like, I don't have the hours to give to this person anymore um, because, you know, my practice is filling up. So it took a while to get there, but it felt good. Mm -hmm. So what were your biggest struggles transitioning to private practice? You know, I think the, the main struggle, and I think a lot of people talk about this, is that risk, you know, of letting go of that steady income, letting go of the insurance, right? Because like, at the time, my insurance was coming from that job. You know, how was I going to pay for that? How I, how was I going to afford that? You know, looking at home circumstances. So I think like being realistic and sitting down and kind of figuring out like, can I do this? And then also having that realistic conversation with myself. If that question of like, what if this doesn't work? right? What if I take that leap of faith, which I am kind of a risk averse person. So to feel like I was taking this risk is a lot for me, but it, it felt right. So I was like ready to do it. But I kind of had that backup plan of like, you know, if this doesn't work right away, if I get a client and then I lose them and I don't have a client for a while, what's my fallback? And truthfully, I said, you know, I might not enjoy it as much, but I know that I could get work in a nursing home. I know that I could go back to activities. And knock on wood, that hasn't happened, but um, I just had to be realistic with myself, you know, and I think people say like, well, failure is not an option. And I definitely had that mentality going into it, but I also wanted to be realistic and just say like, hey, it doesn't mean I failed. I just might have to take a few steps back to then, you know, take another step forward. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the hard ones, the finances and, you know, just taking that that leap. But I really enjoyed starting it up. And I think that that feeling just made everything else worth it in the moment, if that makes sense. Starting your own thing. You're talking yeah, about- like making my own schedule. And, you know, I was tired of not always doing work based off of what the client needed, but oftentimes what the agency wanted, you know, doing what the administration needed, doing what, you know, other departments needed in order to fill beds, you know, and to keep the business running. Right. And all of a sudden I was in this position where I was doing exactly what that client needed. And there was really nobody getting in my way as far as, you know, oh, you can't do this or I'll make it look like that. Or, you know, we need you over here when you should be over there. So I think that feeling alone, I was like, wow, the freedom and actually being able to do what I imagined doing for so long felt so incredible that that fear diminished. <laughs> I was like, it was worth the risk. Yeah, well, that sounds really great. And there definitely are federal and state regulations that can really kind of trap you in certain ways. And, you know, Absolutely. can't can't make the decision that you feel is best for the client, but more so just to be in compliance in a way that doesn't necessarily make sense all the time. Yeah. So. 
not really doing the work or having it disguised as something else kind of takes a toll if you really, really want to be doing that work. So it sounds like you didn't fail, right? Whether that really means failing or not, but you're doing okay. If you call yourself mm-hmm. successful, I, I wanted to ask, what do you think has been helpful for you in succeeding so far and maintaining clients and just kind of keeping your practice going? So, yeah, I mean, success is kind of like, I don't know, I always think of, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, you know, it means something different for everybody. And I think what has kept, like for me, just knowing that either I'm maintaining the status quo or that every year, um, maybe the, the, the revenue is increasing. Like that to me says that, okay, there's a need for what we're doing and, you know, hopefully we'll continue to see this, this trend, but I've certainly had, I think like, I guess, I don't even know if this is the right word. It doesn't feel like failures. You've had, I've had setbacks, right? Like I think everybody has setbacks. And I think those just propel me to kind of work harder, right? Like, okay, so this didn't work. Does that mean I'm not going to do it again? No, I'm going to try it again, maybe six months from now, or maybe I'm going to try my efforts other way, you know, in other ways or reach out to different people. So I think this is just my opinion. I think if you're going to join, like you're going to start your own practice, you know, or go into private practice that you have to know that you are going to have some setbacks, that not everything's going to go smoothly and not everything's going to work out perfectly. But I think that propels you further into your journey. So successes, I guess, um, like what's helped certainly how I decide to reach out to people. I learned early on that even though it was great to build a network of other movement therapists, you know, dance therapists, um, new students, current students, you know, graduates, professors, I realized that that isn't where my clients were coming from. Like other dance therapists already know what dance therapy is. And although we can help redefine it for each other, that wasn't exactly where I knew I was going to get my business from. So early on, I just kind of made a list of places I had either worked at previously or places I really, really wanted to work with or places I knew had the clients that I was trying to get to and just took my chances. Like I did a lot of cold calling, which is awkward and totally uncomfortable sometimes, mm-hmm. but I got used to it real quickly. And I think when you're passionate about what you're talking about, a cold call is a lot easier than I did telemarketing one summer. And that was the hardest thing I ever did. So definitely didn't feel like that because I actually had this passion and Mm -hmm. knowledge behind it. So, you know, reaching out to like other geriatric communities, reaching out to previous uh, colleagues, employers, And I think once people started taking notice, you know, or I got returned phone calls or people even said like, you know, we've been interested in this dance therapy thing and we don't currently have it. How do we find out about it? I was like, well, let me tell you. Um, And just kind of like chipping away at something. So I think I felt more of the sense of like success when my efforts were recognized, if that makes sense, you know, kind of like a, Oh, out of the 10 phone calls, wow, two people called me back. But guess what? Those two people turned into clients and people that didn't even know about dance movement therapy to begin with and kind of took a chance and saw the benefits and then kept asking like, okay, when can you come back? Hey, can you come, you know, twice a month? Oh, now can you come weekly? 
And so it was a lot of patience. I think I don't have patience in all areas of my life, but trying to find the patience for growth and just slowly building up um, has also paid off. I'm curious if you could give an example of what you would say during a cold call. Like what what would be Um, (laughs) your message if you left a message or someone answered the phone? Sure. Um, So I'll be completely honest. Sometimes it helps to have a name to drop. I didn't always have that. But um, really early on, I had a woman that was a social worker who spoke at or did a CE event that I I attended. And um, I decided at the end to go up to her and ask her some questions. And I remember her saying, like, you should try this place or call this place or I have a colleague here, you know, try to reach out to them. And, um, you know, somewhat she gave me permission. It wasn't like she said, please make sure that you say my name. But I did name drop. Like I'd say, you know, oh, so-and-so advised me to call you. So that helped. Um, But as far as a cold call where like you don't know them, they don't know you, you don't have any connection, you got to do your research. It makes a big difference to have have a name to call than to just say, I'd like to talk to your activity director or can I speak to the executive director? Um, Because they get a lot of those calls and they have to weed those out. Um, And sometimes they'll just give you the voicemail and then you kind of never hear back from them. So with social media and the internet the way it is now, it's very easy to find names of people at different locations. So you can find the executive director of a nursing home or you can find, you know, the social service director at, um, you know, an institution. Doesn't mean they're always going to respond. But through LinkedIn and Facebook and um, just all these different social media outlets, I think it's a little bit easier to find people's name. So if you have a name to drop or you finally have a name of someone in the building, I remember like crossing my fingers and thinking like, get the voicemail. I hope I get the voicemail (laughs) because, you know, in my head, I had the script of like what I could say and I could just leave it. And, you know, please call me at your earliest convenience. And that was great. But every now and then you get a hold of someone and then it's kind of like this little voice in your head goes, oh my God, what do you say now? And so I would just start very calmly, like, I would introduce myself. I would say, you know, who I was. I'm calling on behalf of, or, um, you know, if you have a business name, you know, say the business name. Um, and actually, I would start off by saying, do you know what dance movement therapy is? Are you familiar with dance movement therapy? Um, and most of the time I get no, you know, and depending on where I was calling in the definition that I gave, I made sure that it had something to do with the population that they were working with. And almost solved a problem that I knew they had. What do you mean by solve the problem? So like if I'm calling a a memory care unit, you know, like I know that everybody has to deal with behaviors, anxiety, sundowning, you know, at three or four o'clock in the afternoon. So I'd make sure to say that, you know, I'd say, well, dance movement therapy is, you know, kind of give my definition. And I'd say, you know, we have a lot of success you know, using movement to help with anxiety, behavioral disturbances, sundowning. And I don't think that's anything like proprietary, right? Like a lot of therapies help with that music therapy and art therapy. But it was almost like I was speaking their language. And it depends on who you're talking to. So if the connection I had was the marketing director, let's be honest, not a lot of the marketing directors have influence in social services or activities per se. But, you know, I I knew that I could say, well, you know, 
not a lot of places have dance movement therapy. And so some, you know, people are looking for movement therapy and this makes your building really marketable. If you're interested, give me a call, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or to the nursing directors, they wanted to hear that alternative therapies were going to reduce psychotropic medication use or, you know, you don't have to use a PRN because creative arts therapies can act as a way to manage and circumvent and even maybe prevent some of these huge behavior problems. Again, those are big generalizations, but it was just the opportunity to further the conversation. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a lie. It wasn't giving false accusations or promising something we couldn't deliver on, but it was the words that they needed to hear to even continue the conversation. You know, if I just said, Oh, this is me, this is my company and we're interested in providing services they get those calls all the time. And I'm just specifically speaking to like a nursing home, let's say. Um, they get calls from, you know, vendors. They get calls from musicians. They get calls from, you know, um, performers, you know, that want to entertain. And so I really wanted to be like direct and, and get out there what I knew we could do or, or provide as, as movement therapists. So know your audience, you know, make your script or what you're going to say over the phone, base it off of what that person's position is and how you can help make their job easier. Yeah. And I heard you say speak their language, which is something that's important to in order to connect with them and to invest in you, even if it's just for a a follow up phone call or whatever it might be. Right. You know, and as like movement therapists, I know we concentrate a lot on the body and you know, we want to use movement that's going to express or kind of speak that language, right? So, um, you know, from handshake and, uh, you know, confident posture and all these things, especially if you're really nervous, like going into a major meeting with like an executive. But sometimes when we go back to the business side of things, yes, the body's important, but sometimes the words are really important because they want to hear certain phrases. And if they don't, they're not going to be interested. It's kind of a hard lesson. I'd like go back and be like, oh, right. Okay. Be in your body and know what you're doing. But um, I had to tone down a lot of the movement therapy terms and phrases because I realized they didn't understand it. So do you have any consistent challenges that you still face? Oh, definitely. You know, I think consistently, and I think you've addressed this in some of your other podcasts, like the misconceptions of what dance movement therapy is, you know, so I get people that say, well, I don't dance, so I'm not interested. Then you get the people that, that really do dance and just want to dance. And you're like, well, well, it's not dance specifically, and it's not lessons, but, but on that hand, it's, you know, we practice counseling. So it's, it's a psychotherapy and it's kind of an alternative to talk therapy, you know, so it's this weird in between and constantly having to like redefine what dance movement therapy is based off of the needs of the individual calling. Um, you know, I've turned down many people who are looking for a dance class or a therapeutic class just because we don't, I don't offer those right now. doesn't mean that it's not possible or not appropriate. It's just not the focus of the company that I built. I think another one would just be the, although it's getting better because more people are interested in movement and this mind-body connection, it's still breaking down that stigma of mental health, you know? So I think it was one thing to get people to sign on to traditional talk therapy. Some people love to talk about issues and others don't. 
Um, and now we're like, well, not only can you talk about them, but actually we can embody them and we can move them. You know, so you have the people that maybe already roll their eyes around the thought of therapy. Then they're really rolling their eyes because they're like, what? Now I'm going to move it. That doesn't even make sense. To me. You know, like I don't want to talk about it, let alone, you know, dance it. And so again, it's like this re-education of actually it might really, it might work for you because you don't have to talk. You can just be in your body and we can explore that together. And so I think oftentimes I get this, you know, laugh or like eye roll. And sometimes those end up being the best candidates and the best clients because Mm -hmm. they have a lot they need to talk about and they're not talkers. And we can just sit in a room and have an amazing conversation without using any words. That's so interesting. Those are issues across the board in this field. These these kinds of fields. I mean, I don't really think it's any, I mean, I'm sure I have specific like demographic issues or, um, you know, specifically I've had issues trying to get groups going just because of the area that we're in and, um, it's competitive, but there's this misconception, I think of like, if something's out in social media, that so many people are going to see it. And truthfully, not a lot of people do. (laughs) So it's like, I think, what do they say? 10% of your because of their algorithms now, like 10% of the people that follow you on Facebook actually see what you post. Oh, that's um, sad and discouraging. Right, right. Unless you have thousands and thousands of followers, great. But so, you know, I think I've made the mistake of like relying on social media sometimes too much. And then I'm like, oh, how come nobody responded? Oh, right. Because only 10% of people saw it. And those 10% might not even be people that are interested in movement therapy. They might be my friends and family. You know, they're like, good for you. I'm like, oh, that's thanks. Thanks. (laughs) I need clients. (laughs) Right. So I don't think it's anything specific other than, you know, the misconceptions about what we do and, and um, just redefining what we do constantly. You know, I would always use, I would always use the definition that the ADTA gives, you know, the psychotherapy use of movement, dot, dot, dot. Until like, I don't know, maybe about a year ago, I realized that a lot of the public didn't even understand that definition. It makes sense to us because it's all inclusive and it's what we do. But a lot of people were like, what's psychotherapy? Like, oh, oh, you don't know what's, oh, okay, well, how do I redefine psychotherapy? (laughs) Um, Oh, what's integration? Yeah, that's a good question. What is integration? You know? constantly changing the definition again, based off of your audience. I think finding other opportunities to talk about movement therapy when it's not movement therapy related, if that makes sense. So it's like, um, I don't know. It's like we're coming up to back to school season, believe it or not. And so rather than creating a blog post or, um, you know, an entire piece on dance movement therapy specifically with back to school, Maybe we look for ways that like the body can be present when kids are going back to school or how can we reduce anxiety in our children when they go back to school? Like those are all things I think that a lot of dance movement therapists can speak to. And we kind of, I think we have to give ourselves permission to talk on different subjects using our backgrounds. Right. Yeah. Um, I know not a lot of people agree with that and that's okay. That's, that's just where I am again, because I'm trying to get some more exposure for the field. So Well, I can totally relate. I mean, I I was just working on an episode and I struggle back and forth with certain words. And do I use the term dance movement therapy or do I use mind body connection or because that's that's my goal as well is I want to 
create a, a further community and connection within our field, but also to other fields and similar fields. So I, I get that. And yeah, I think it's hard because it's like, but I just got that definition down. Now I have to create a new one. But I realized like we all have to kind of define dance movement therapy for ourselves, like in our own practices. What are we doing? Maybe it's dependent on the population you're working with or the demographic or, you know, where you're practicing. So I think, you know, we practice that formal definition until we get it, until we really understand what it is that we do. And then I think once you do, it's like sit with your own definition and try to figure out how you practice dance movement therapy. I know this comes up a lot, not in private practice, so to speak, but this idea of like that it has to look a certain way or it has to be performed a certain way. And I think it's scary, but especially when you're in private practice, it does allow you that opportunity to to create your own format, in a, in a sense. Yeah. So you talked about how you got started, kind of the struggles, starting a, a dance movement therapy private practice. Mm-hmm. Any other tips that you would give to anybody thinking about starting private practice? You know, people mm-hmm. kind of on the fence, kind of not sure if it's something that's possible, just whatever advice yeah. you can give. So I guess, first off, you know, depending on where you are in your state, like definitely research and become as familiar as possible with your with your licensure, right? Even in Illinois, like I'll have people that say, hey, I'm really interested in private practice, or are you hiring? And I'm always excited to potentially have somebody come on board, but I hire independent contractors and I can't have an independent contractor unless that person has their clinical license in the state of Illinois. So... You know, if you are really interested and you think there even might be an inkling of interest in going into private practice, research your your licensure and go for those letters. Um, so is that for a, insurance? Sorry, interrupt. Um, it's not just for insurance. Uh, so in the state of Illinois, so you have to have a, a license. Yes, ideally to bill under. But um, even if you're not taking insurance, legally and ethically, you should have that. You should have a license to practice counseling. So, you know, it depends. I know that there are ways around it. If you're not doing counseling and you're kind of doing body work, um, you know, some people like will use dance movement specialist or you can be, um, I don't know, kind of using this. I don't know if any dance movement therapists that are doing this, but in Illinois, we have a lot of coaches, like health coaches and life coaches that I know that's not necessarily regulated in the same way. So I think just just be aware of your license or what licensure you might need in order to practice privately. So I would say that's number one. You know, number two, there are always options. You can join a group practice. And that was actually my intent. I wanted to join a group practice thinking, okay, someday I'll go off on my own. And I reached out to a bunch of group practices. And at the time, I was really trying to push the fact that I was a dance movement therapist. Like, yes, I'm a clinical counselor like all of your other, you know, practitioners, but this is what I can bring to the table. And at the time, nobody really cared. I hate to say that, (laughs) but that's how it felt. It didn't make a difference. It didn't make me stand out. And that's different now. I think there are a lot of group practices that love that we have this specialty. They're looking for art therapists. They're looking for music therapists. They're looking for this well-rounded, holistic approach to counseling in their own practices. So again, at the time I was like, well, if there's no group practice that is looking for this specialty, 
I'm sure among other things, I didn't have a lot of experience. I was brand new. You know, it just didn't fit the bill. And I was like, well, maybe I could just start out on my own and see what happens. And you kind of moonlight and pick up a client here and there. And I think I just fell in love with that so much that I just kind of kept putting my efforts there. So, you know, just know your options. You can join a group practice. And I think just exploring, like knowing the population you'd like to work in, even if someday you want to work in a broader setting, you know, find something that really speaks to you and that you're passionate about. Again, that sets you apart, you know? So if you're into addictions, you know, go for uh, that license or, or, you know, try to get as much experience as you can in addictions, uh, eating disorders, geriatrics, any, any population that you feel like is really where your passion lies is another thing that's going to kind of set you apart and really keep you on that path. Um, and then just networking. I think you kind of said at the beginning, like, Oh, you know, I, I noticed that like you reach out to a lot of different people practice selling yourself, like marketing who you are and what you do. So I even say like, to students, you know, make a business card. I get that you can't really put dance with therapist on there yet because you can't be hired as a dance therapist, but you know, make a business card and just start like getting used to passing out your information, connect with people on LinkedIn and Facebook, you know, other dance therapists and just other practitioners all over the country or all over the world even, because if you want to specifically do movement therapy or bill yourself as a dance movement therapist, People have to know what it is. Otherwise, we won't continue to get work. Um, so any opportunity that you have to educate other people, you know, if it's a blog, if it's a podcast, if it's, um, you know, getting a quote in an article. I mean, just so the public starts to see the phrase movement therapy or dance movement therapy, it's the exposure that, um, you know, I think will help private practices um, continue to thrive. So how much has networking paid off in terms of people reaching back out to you or people saying they've heard about you or they recognize you in a certain article or podcast or whatnot? Um, I would say, that's a good question. I don't know if I could put a percentage, but I would say it's worked out more than it hasn't. So I don't know, let's say six out of 10 times, right? It doesn't work every single time, but again, for me, it's the experience, right? So if I waited, I mean, first of all, you never know what's going to take hold. So if I was very selective about who I reached out to, those might be the ones that don't even take hold. And then I'm kind of back at square one. So I kind of shoot for the moon. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I don't always hear back from people, but you know, in this day and age, I mean, it might not be them that's actually controlling their account. But I mean, look, we can tweet to celebrities, right? Like we can post things to the Ellen show. We can post things to the Today Show. They might not cover it, but all it takes is one time, you know? So sometimes I'll kind of go out there and like I said, shoot for the moon. I think for me, it's the experience. It's again, being comfortable with just talking about what you do or, you know, being very precise wording wise with like, here's a short description of what we do and why you need to know about it. But it certainly helped when it comes to like more local things, uh, you know, so, you know, responding to a query about, you know, a, a Psych Central article or Psychology Today, or it might be like Bustle or gosh, there's so many, you know, Huffington Post or something like that. 
never underestimate that, like, just because they're not, because it, it could be years. Hopefully it's only a few years, but it could be years until somebody says, I'd like to know what a dance mood therapist thinks about this. <laughs> and until then, we have to look for other opportunities, you know? So if they're asking for what is, you know, we need therapists to talk about this. We need life coaches to talk about this. You know what? We could qualify, right? We guide people. We give, we don't, I, I think in a very different way, but sometimes I've seen those and I'm like, well, you know what? I'm going to try it anyway. And it oftentimes works because they see your experience, your credentials or your, your degree. And that's more than they were expecting. So yeah, I would say like more times than not, it's worked. I've had like unexpected answers. Um, I do a lot of work with Parkinson's and I reached out to an organization and actually got the executive director of for their foundation. It wasn't like the person in charge of their blog. It was like the entire foundation. The person reached back out. I mean, does, is anything going to come from that? Who knows? But it's a wonderful contact to have. And then to always save those contacts, you know, because yes, there's a lot of turnover. But even if, you know, that executive director leaves, you can say, you know, like, well, I was in touch with so-and-so a couple years ago, and this is what we spoke about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would just say, like, really don't underestimate the potential, you know, if there's a, what, what's everybody sending out now? This new um, improvisational dance study that Wake Forest is going to be doing. Uh, there's a doctor and a professor that is, they're running the study. And... I don't know if I'm going to hear back from them, but I looked them up on LinkedIn and Facebook and got their emails and reached out to them. So, I mean, maybe I won't, but gosh, if they're going to do a study about improvisational dance with dementia, wouldn't it be great if they had a dance movement therapist to talk to? Yeah. You know, here's a bridge, you know, let's, let's build that, build that bridge and create less of a gap. So yeah, I mean, networking, I don't know. I, I love it. Like now I, I find that I like the business development side of things. And I never thought I would. I still love working with clients, but I think the more I get to do like development and reaching out and kind of creating these, these networks, um, it's I mean, great. Socialization because, too, you know, like you're connecting with people and probably talking about something you both have common interests and passions for. So that's pretty cool. And you know, one of, one of the things that I thought about going to private practice, probably depending on your practice is it could be a little more isolating than when you were in a bigger institution and you had more of a team. And, you know, I don't know how big your team is if you have a big team at all, but the business development side or connecting and networking that could get you back in with finding, you know, not necessarily talking to them for support, but inevitably getting support and communication. Yeah. You know, and I'm glad you said that because I think that's the first thing that a lot of people will say, like, private practice is so lonely. And I was concerned about that because I was like, well, I don't want to be lonely, you know, like I don't want to just feel like it's me all the time and I don't have anybody to talk to. But I think you're right. Like building those social networks has made it feel like it's not so lonely and it helps to have a little right to have other people that join and to have them to talk to or for them to talk to you. But yeah, if you build this connection to other practitioners or other colleagues or other clinicians aside from dance movement therapy, it really does make it feel like more of a network, more of a connection. So if I have a concern or a problem come up or I want to collaborate, it's not just me. I don't have to put on this event by myself and I can use those those connections to maybe make an event bigger than I could have just, just by myself or just make it happen at all because of somebody else's networks. So I think that's a, that's a great point. Definitely. It, 
doesn't feel as lonely if you put in the effort to really, you know, build a, a connection in a network for yourself. Honestly, when I worked at some of the facilities I worked in, I, I think sometimes I felt lonelier <laughs> because I felt like a dance movement therapist in a world that didn't understand dance movement therapy. And it just, it felt very lonely. It might've felt different if I didn't, if I wasn't like going in thinking that, does that, you know, like if, if I wasn't putting myself out there and thinking like, come on, dance therapy, dance therapy, and like beating it over the head, like beating people over the head about it. Well, there's, um, re- there's rejection within that. Right. And, and that felt out. very lonely, very lonely. And so I don't know, I kind of had the opposite feeling that doesn't feel so lonely because now I'm partnering with people that get it. They want it. They get it. Um, and the ones that don't understand, I just keep trying. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a cool perspective. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully make somebody else uh, not avoid the risk of private practice because of, you know, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to feel lonely because uh, I remember people telling me that too. I had wanted to ask this earlier, but you had just said talking about scaring away people. I think the topic of insurance might scare away people. Is that as complicated yeah. as it seems? You know, I don't want to give any false information or make it seem less than it is, but I have not found like major issues or complications with insurance. Now, however, I don't use it very often. 25%, let's say of my clients actually use insurance again, because I'm working with geriatrics and most of them are on Medicare in which LCPCs cannot go Medicare. So you know, starting out as a private pay or like, you know, out of pocket agency practice, whatever, I think kind of set the tone. And what ended up happening is like people would call and they might be interested in therapy. And, you know, you get to the discussion of price and which is always, always can feel a little awkward, no matter how long you've been practicing. And I would pose, you know, well, if, if that's not possible, or that seems a little daunting, you know, we have sliding scale or, you know, we do accept some insurances and people were like, what? Dance therapy is billable by insurance. And I was like, well, no counseling, psychotherapy counseling is billable by insurance. Um, but as a dance woman therapist, you know, we can use some interventions and, and, you know, we can bill as a psychotherapy cause that's what it is. It was very helpful for a lot of our clients and it actually opened us up to a different clientele. Sometimes I think people see it as a more legitimate therapy because insurance reimburses for it, which is not true. Um, there are a lot of wonderful therapies out there that should be reimbursable by insurance because they're so beneficial and meaningful and they're not. But sometimes that's a world we live in and people are like, Oh, Oh, well, if my insurance will cover it, well then let's do it. (laughs) Like, so, um, I really, it's not as bad. I think, what you need to do is talk to somebody who's already done it. I think we always try to reinvent the wheel. You know, we're like, oh, starting from square one. And there's so many wonderful resources out there nationally or even just locally on, you know, how to become a provider, how to get in with a network. You know, there are very specific steps that need to happen that if you know them, it can make it way more manageable. The hardest part, I think, ends up being just waiting to be credentialed because that can take months because they have so many people that are wanting to become providers and putting through your claims. I know depending on how many people you see that can take a long time. Again, I don't see a lot of people through insurance. So I do my billing. It takes me 
maybe an hour at the most, a week, every other week. Um, you know, if you're seeing 30 clients and they all use insurance, that's when people usually start looking for a third party to hire somebody to do their billing. That's kind of down the road. But in a nutshell, I don't think insurance is as bad as it sounds. I only take two or three insurance companies. I don't do them all. I think that helped me too, just to kind of keep it in perspective. Certainly, I'm not, I always say, and I think this to myself, like, I'm not an expert at private practice by any means. There's so many dance therapists that have been in private practice. I think I can say this for more years than I've been on this earth. <laughs> so, like, I am not, I, I, I'm not out there saying, like, this is how it has to be done and this is what you should do. But I think there's so many myths and misconceptions that we have. And so to have someone who's been doing it for less say, hey, guys, it's possible. It's not that scary. And you can do it. <laughs> like, I wanted somebody telling me that. And so maybe that's kind of why I, I like to put some of this stuff out there. Because if I can be just like that sounding board so that people maybe aren't as afraid to venture out and try it, then I've met my goal. So. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And, you know, you were talking about people who've been in private practice for 30 plus years. Well, at the time when they started their practice is very different than the time that you started it. So it's it's also nice right. to get a fresh perspective on that. And, and that's not to say that, you know, I think it would be great and helpful if someone who has been in private practice for many, many years also came on to the podcast and gave their perspective. Oh, so. Totally. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> I would love that. Because yeah. I think like what you were saying before is like, sometimes people are, you, you were saying before we started the podcast, but like people are afraid of technology. And I think that's where it, it that's where there's a big difference is like, whether you're a private practitioner or not, the dance therapists that are coming out of schools today are in technology or in social. And I'm not even a social media guru at all. Like I don't, I don't Snapchat. I don't do Pinterest. There's so many things I don't do, but just venturing into some of the things that I've done has helped get dance movement therapy out in a different light. Mm -hmm. um, and some people might not agree with that. And that's, that's okay. I know I'm not going to jive with everyone. But it's helped me get some clients. It's helped me spread the word about what dance moon therapy is. So to me, sometimes that's where the generations, there's a, there's a gap because we're all like snapping and chatting and tweeting all about our work. You know, I'm like, here I am getting this space ready. And, you know, here I am after this beautiful session. And that wasn't happening before. Thank you for offering your perspective and your knowledge on this subject. Thank you again so much. Yeah. Thanks, Erica. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Tune in for next week's episode to hear part two of the Mind Body Marketing Series. Bye.